Hi, this is Ned Siegfried from Siegfried & Jensen. As proud sponsors of BeliefCast, we hope you are inspired by Todd's weekly podcasts, which contain so many courageous stories of recovery and personal growth. Remember, it's not what happened in the past that matters, it's what happens in the future. We invite you all to work hard and be optimistic about your future. Enjoy today's podcast. Welcome back, everybody. This is Todd Sylvester with the Todd Inspires Belief Cast. Thank you so much for joining once again. I love you guys. Thank you so much for your support. I also would like to give a shout out to our sponsors, Siegfried and Jensen, Wasatch Recovery, iHill Institute, and Veracity Networks. Thank you for believing in me and helping further this cause and getting these amazing stories out to more and more people. We're, we're trending on Apple and Google Podcasts. And it's because of people like you who tune in week after week. Um, we're, we're, I have an amazing guest today. Her name is Denise Redeker. Denise, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor to be here. Oh, thank you so much, guys. You're going to love her. Let me give you a little background on her. Uh, Denise is a heart transplant recipient. I mean, just saying that alone um, I can't wait to get to know more about what that whole experience was about. She's also a patient advocate, organ donation advocate, for, and also the founder of Heartfelt Help Foundation, which we'll learn more about, which she founded back in uh, 2020. Um, and it basically is she helps other transplant recipients both afford and source the medically required post-transplant uh, needs and housing and things like that. Um, she has been featured on numerous podcasts to discuss organ donations, heart disease, and the need for accessible housing in the San Francisco Bay Area. In her free time, she loves to walk on the beach and discover new hiking trails with her husband, Jim, and her son, Matthew. But I also want to say one thing before we get, before we hear from Denise, um, a testimonial that I was reading that I thought was so powerful. She's, it says this. Denise has provided our family comfort and reassurance during one of the most difficult times of our lives. Although words cannot express our gratitude, we hope that the Heartfelt Help Foundation knows we appreciate their generous and genuine support. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I just love that you're out there helping other people. And I think it's so neat that you went through your own trial through this, but now you're giving back. That's got to feel really good. It feels great. Um, I have always, my parents taught me and I've always known that the best way to get through a difficult time, no matter what it is, is to do something for somebody else. Yeah. Isn't that so, it's so simple, but so true, right? It is. It is the simplest thing and um, it gets you out of your own head. It makes you realize you're not alone. Yeah. And um it just, it just changes. It just changes the world, not only for you, but for somebody else. Right. Wow. Well, why don't we start off? Tell us where you're from and tell us a little bit about your childhood and your, you know, your upbringing. Well, I'm originally from Southern California, uh, the Los Angeles area. Um, okay. um, I am a Valley girl for anyone who <laughs> that resonates with. Oh yeah. Um, born Valley and raised girl. in the San Fernando Valley. Um, and moved to Northern California, um, in the early nineties, um, and now live in Sonoma County wine country. It's beautiful up here. Oh man. I've seen pictures of that. I've, um, uh, I can only imagine the weather's pretty, you know, good. Most of the time I would imagine. It's perfect. It's not too hot. It's not too cold. 
we are we are officially Californians in general or weather wimps. And um, I right. think Northern California is pretty much the pinnacle of weather wimpiness. But we can't right. we can't handle it when it rains. We can't handle it when it's too hot. <laughs> yeah. That is true. Yes, that is so true. We're it's a little different where I'm from. It's snowing all the time. It's cold and we, you know, it can snow three feet and we're like, no, no big deal. No big deal. I yeah. used to, I went to high school in Montreal, so I've had my no big deal with snow, but oh, yeah. I have reverted to my weather wimpiness ways. <laughs> well, you mentioned you learned from your, you know, from your parents that uh, to, to help, if you really want to feel better about yourself and get out of your own head to help other people, you know, growing up as a, as a small kid and stuff, what were some of the lessons that uh, stand out to you that you learned from your family? Um. We had a very small family. I'm an only child. Um, okay. And so there was always some level of community. Um, mm. My parents always built community. My dad was um, sick a lot. Um, he had emphysema and heart disease. Um, it wasn't until I was diagnosed with my own heart disease that I realized that as a kid, I probably had heart disease too. It just wasn't diagnosed um, oh, that wow. my issues were, were most likely congenital. But back then, nobody took kids to the doctor for a preventative heart screening. Oh, yeah. Even right. if everybody else in the family, everybody on one side of the family died of heart disease. Nobody assumed back then, at least my parents didn't. I don't, I never heard it from a doctor. I don't recall yeah. ever hearing it from a doctor when I went for my annual, you know, physicals when I was little um, to say, well, you know, everybody on her father's side of the family has died of heart disease. Um, maybe, maybe we ought to check her too. That, yeah. that just never happened. Right. So, um, so I, I most likely had undiagnosed as a child, undiagnosed heart disease, um, but didn't know it. Um, but my, my dad was, in fact, my, I don't really have a whole lot of memories of him being healthy. Okay. Well, so did you notice though, was it affecting your, your health, but you just didn't know what it was back then? Or did you, or was it kind of undetected and you didn't really feel any, you know, uh, effects from it? You know, that's kind of hard to say with any kind of, of accuracy. I wasn't the most active kid on the planet. I mm -hmm. wasn't, I, but I always attributed that to the fact that I'm super uncoordinated. I'm still a little graceless, but, um, but I, you know, I, I wasn't the most athletic human on the planet, the most athletic kid on the planet. So I kind of chalked it up to me being not very athletic. Um, right. I okay. like to read, I like to do other things, but I wasn't super athletic. I now think in retrospect, um, with 2020 hindsight that we all yeah. have right. that I was probably sick. Um, mm. but I didn't know it. Right. Wow. So when, so let's just get right to it then. So when did you officially find out that you had a heart disease? How old were you? I was 29. Okay. So it was way later in life when you it found that out way later in life. Okay. Um, it was right after I delivered my son. Um, and my father-in-law actually was the one who diagnosed me. He, um, mm. he just passed away in January and, um, 
he was a world-renowned liver specialist. Okay. Um, and he walked in to meet his new grandson. And I was still, I had had a uh, C-section. So I was hooked up to an EKG monitor. And he immediately looked at the EKG monitor out of most likely just habit. Right. And was like, that's, that's wrong. And really? I'm not sure because, because of the fact that um, I was in there for, for labor and delivery that I'm not sure that there was anybody who would have noticed, but for him. Um, so mm. I, he saved my life because I'm not sure I would have survived to see today, um, but for that diagnosis. So he, he immediately looked at the EKG monitor and was like, that's, that's something's wrong there and insisted that they bring in the, um, the on duty cardiologist and they ran some tests and um said you know once you're out of here you've got to go see a cardiologist they're going to run some more tests and um they diagnosed me with postpartum cardiomyopathy um which just means after you've had a baby so you know okay it was cardiomyopathy was it was it hypertrophic cardiomyopathy which is a congenital thing we will not we will never know Right. Well, what a random thing, right? Like you said, had he not noticed that? I mean, I always think of these, these moments in our lives that are these, you know, like these tender mercies, these, these little teeny miracles that we maybe at the time didn't really recognize, but what a, that's a miracle, honestly, that he actually noticed that and said, Hey, something's not right. And I don't know, that just kind of blows my mind that that, uh, you had that experience there. Life is, and I, I'm not going to say I'm unique in this because I'm not. Life is a series of little miracles. We just have to notice them. Yeah. Um, the things that change our, that pivot our direction, um, even if we think they're awful at the time. When I was diagnosed, I did not think it was a gift. I did not think it was a little miracle. <laughs> I was ticked off. Um, but, um, and, and went into instant denial about it. Okay. I was like, that's not, that's not who I am. Right. Um, but I'm, I'm a good patient. So I went to the cardio and my father-in-law would not allow me to not be a good patient. Um, (laughs) so I went to the cardiologist, I got the diagnosis. I took the medications that they told me to and went back every six months or a year for follow-up. Um, and literally the rest of the time thought nothing about it. I didn't think about it. I didn't, I had other things to do. I had more important things to do in my mind than to think about it. Right. Wow. So I, I wanted to ask you the, those questions you just kind of brought up. I mean, you know, hearing that diagnosis, you said you were ticked. Did you ever like, did you go through any like depression or anything like that? I don't know that I would call it depression. I did. I don't think so. No, I think I was just angry about it. I, okay. I spent, I spent a little bit of time being, and I don't even know that angry is the right word, just irritated. I yeah. just, like that's, <laughs> and, and, and then immediately moved into, I feel fine. So this isn't, I know they're saying that this is true and all these tests are saying this is true, but it's just not true. So um, I, I call, I call myself in retrospect, the queen of denial um, <laughs> because I, that's where I, just moved in. I moved into denial. Right. Um, 
I took up residence. I decorated it well. I, I lived in denial. And it really wasn't until I had a series of wake-up calls um, that I realized that you can live in denial for a little bit of time, yeah. but it's always going to circle around and you are always going to have to come to grips with it, Yeah. Um, wh- whatever it is. What, what were some of those wake-up calls? Um, well... One of them, the first one that I had was um, just a regular going in for a regular checkup. I had to switch cardiologists. I think we switched insurance companies. And of course, when you switch insurance companies, you have to switch all your doctors. And so I moved to a new cardiologist, which meant not much to me um, and went to go see this new cardiologist. And he ran a bunch of tests on me that I hadn't had run before. And he called me and said, you need to come back in today and bring your husband with you. That is never a good sign. I knew that that wasn't a good sign. And I had a holy crap moment and thought, (laughs) oh, oh, this is, this is not good. What is, what is he going to tell me? Yeah. And so I came back and, and to the doctor's office and brought my husband with me. And we sat down and he said, your heart is not doing, it's not, it's not pumping the way it ought to. Um, there's something with a heart function called an ejection fraction, which is just measuring the amount of blood that your heart is pumping out. Your ejection fraction is failing. It's, it's declining. Um, we need to put a pacemaker defibrillator an ICD in, and we need to do it like today. Wow. And me, because I'm still, remember, I'm still comfortably living in denial. Right. And this hasn't woken me up yet. Totally. Um, school was about to get out for my kid for, for spring break for Easter vacation. And I was like, you are not, you are not wrecking my Easter vacation. We have plans we're (laughs) doing, you know, we have things that we're doing. This is not going to change what we're doing. And in retrospect, I mean, yes, that was a bit of denial speaking, but it was also me taking charge of my own health right. um, and me saying, okay, these are the things that are my priorities that I don't want my kid to remember me as being sick all the time and wrecking, you know, we can't go on the trip that we had planned or have the things that do the things we had planned to do because mom's sick. Um, right, right. And so I said, we just need to put this off. I am happy to check myself into the hospital for this surgery next Monday. This was a week off next Monday. And he was right. horrified because <laughs> he was like, in his mind, this was a emergent surgery. Yeah, This was something that needed to happen today. He wanted, he literally wanted me to go check and um, admit myself to the hospital that day, like right after I left the office. And I said no, and he was appalled. Um, yeah. <laughs> but I, I wasn't willing to, I wasn't willing to compromise on that. And I said, I'll be back. I'll be back next Monday. Um, and was and had my surgery. It was fine. Right. All turned out. Obviously, it all turned out fine. Um, and went <laughs> yeah. back in the Monday after and had my ICD implanted, and. Wow. Um, that was my first little wake up call, but it wasn't a big enough wake up call to make me 
even begin to process what was going on. Um, and even then at the time, the word transplant, the phrase, you know, this ends in transplant. Yeah. Started being bandied about, but my internal response was always be, yeah, for somebody else, but not for me. That's going to happen. That happens to somebody else, but not for me, which I think is how we all process this kind of news is, well, that's going to happen to somebody else. Exactly. Um, Yeah. Right. But my second wake up call, um, to backtrack a little bit, I had over the years, I had three different ICDs implanted. I got recalled once and had to have a battery replaced. Um, and then for some reason they switched me from one manufacturer to another, but I can't remember why. Mm. Um, but, um, but even with the, the ICDs, my defibrillator, the defibrillator part had never gone off. So I felt fine until I started going off. Yeah. And when a defibrillator shocks you, um, they tell you, they warn you that it's going to feel like a donkey kicking you in the chest, a horse kicking you in the chest. And they're not lying. It does. It drops you to your knees. Um, If you're standing up, I had it happen once when I was asleep. Really? Um, I, I had it happen when I was standing at my bathroom sink, washing my face. Um, And, Mm. and it just, it, it is terrifying. It's terrifying to have a defibrillator go off. Um, and it started to go off more and more. And so they Mm -hmm. would adjust things, adjust medication. And still I kept thinking this transplant thing is going to happen to somebody else. They're going to figure out how to fix my heart right? because I'm a good patient. So, so we're going to fix this. Um, and, uh, it really wasn't until December of 2017 when a, my cardiologist sat me down and said, mm-hmm. we have reached the gold standard of what we can do for you medically. Mm. And we think you've got about a year left to live without a transplant. Wow. And um, we're going to start working you up for presenting you to be listed for transplant. And we're going to start that right after the first of the year. And I thought, holy crap, this isn't going to happen to somebody else. This is, this is actually, yeah. if I want to see, if I want to see my son get married, if I want to play with my grandchildren, this is going to have to happen to me. Yeah. Right. Wow. I can't imagine hearing that, those, that very sentence that you just said, you got about a year, you know, to, to do this, or you're, you know, you're not going to make it. How, obviously it was a shock to you, but what, what were some of the other feelings you were feeling? Uh, you obviously were racing through your head about, oh, I don't want to miss my son's wedding. I don't want to miss this or that. What else was going through your mind? Um, a lot of, I think I switched into, at that moment, I switched into analytical mode. I had oh. questions. I had a lot of questions like, let's, let's figure this out. Um, yeah. I'm a girl who needs a plan and I like a plan yeah. and, <laughs> right. uh, and, and life doesn't always give you a plan. Um, right. It just doesn't. And so um, learning to be okay with the fact that plans change and that this was just going to be a season of 
you can plan all you want, but this is, you know, it may not be the way that this ends up happening. Yeah. Um, and it wasn't because we started, um, I think I went to maybe one appointment after the first of the year to start doing all of the prerequisites to be listed yeah. for transplant. You have to be healthy enough to sick enough to need one, but healthy enough to survive it. Yeah. And so they are running cancer screenings, blood work, um, mammograms. They're checking your dental history. They want to make sure that there's nothing else going on um, with any other part of your body. Um, so yeah, I think right. I went to one of, I think maybe I've got my dentist check done. That was probably it after the first of the year. Yeah. Um, and here's another miracle that I didn't think was a miracle at the time. Um, because, um, if I had been allowed to sit and process this, I probably would have spiraled off into some place that was a lot darker than, than I ended up doing. Yeah, and it right. was because I had a ventricular tachycardia attack. Um, on January 6th mm. and that landed me in the hospital. My defibrillator went off, um, and, and just went off like multiple times that night, um, and mm. went to the hospital and got transferred by ambulance to Stanford university and told that I was too sick to go home and that oh, I would man. be moving into the hospital until I received my new heart. I was just too fragile. There was not, it was too yeah. risky to send me home. Um, and that was, that was another unexpected miracle because yeah. it really pushed me into overdrive as far as like, okay, let's start processing this now and gave me the time without having to do the other things of life. Um, and let me know that this was, this was as emergent as they kept saying it was. Wow. So we Man. moved into the hospital to wait. Jeez. And this is January 6th. You said January 6th of 2018, 2018, a question I get a lot. And, and I have people say, you need to ask this question. Cause I've had other transplant recipients on my podcast and they want me to, they are always like, well, ask, so when you, so now you're in the hospital, it's January 6th, you know, there you're, you can't leave now. I, people always want to know, are you thinking about your mortality? Are you thinking about, geez, I could, I could die here. And then what, what did that, did that create fear? Did it create just, you know, tell us a little bit about what might be going around your mind around your mortality. I planned my memorial service. Really? Um, I knew my husband would be, and he's an amazing human, but he would not want to do this. Sure. And so I called a couple of friends. I called my pastor. I called uh, a couple of friends who are, um, have beautiful voices and sing and told them, I want you to sing. And I want you to yeah. sing this song. I want this to happen. I, you know, and I, I planned it all out, um, and said, you know, told people I wanted them to speak and, um, had it, had it planned out, um, wow. probably still in a file in my pastor's office somewhere. Right. Um, I would imagine unless he burned it, <laughs> Yeah, right. um, or shredded it. Um, but yeah. I had planned, um, I wasn't afraid. Okay. 
I wasn't, I wasn't afraid of dying. In fact, I think I really didn't think I was going to, Okay. but I knew, I knew I had to get my affairs in order because I knew that there was a distinct possibility that I would not see my next birthday. Right. Um, and so, yeah, I, I planned everything out. I, I, I was, I was, I was fairly certain that I wouldn't have to use it. I don't know why. I mean, there was no logical reason why I should be certain that I wasn't going to use it, but I wanted to make sure that my husband and my son didn't have to worry about it, that mom had still planned it all out, you know? And, um, and it made me feel good to have a plan. There was a plan. I'm again, a girl who likes a plan. So there was a plan. How is Jim and your son, Matthew, handling all of this at this time? Um, They are, (laughs) they are super analytical humans, both of them. Um, They, they are cut from the same cloth. Their father, my father-in-law was exactly the same way. Okay. Um, (laughs) The Redeker gene runs strong. Um, (laughs) And, and whereas I am more emotional. Um, I have an analytical side, but I have an emotional side. They are fully analytical. So their way of dealing with things is to completely understand it. Right. And so, um, I, I remember, um, one of the funny moments in the hospital was, I remember there was a time where Matthew and Jim were both in the hospital room. I can't remember if this was immediately pre-transplant or immediately post, but one of the times And Stanford is a teaching hospital, it's a university hospital. So right. yeah. anytime a doctor comes in to see you, they're bringing a team of humans with them, the medical students, residents, fellows, there's, there's like 10 people in your room at any given time. Yeah. Um, and I remember my focus was on the door when they walked in. And I remember the look of like, oh crap, the family's here on their face because they were like, we're not going to be able to leave this room for like 30 minutes because they're going to have right. every single question. They're going to have yeah. all the questions. Um, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I swear they both ended up with honorary medical degrees at the end. <laughs> Probably. Um, because they, yeah. their, their way of processing is to completely understand it, which yeah. I kind of love. I wish I were more like that. Um, yeah, it's, right. it's a great way of handling things because when you completely understand it, you can figure out a solution. Um, and so they would ask all of the questions, every single question all the time. Right. Well, another, those are another miracle because they probably helped in the process too. And kind of like when your father-in-law saw, you know, that, Hey, there's something going on here, you know, just those little things along the way, which is really powerful. Yeah. I was just curious on how, how they were handling watching mom and, 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 you know, obviously Jim, you're being, you know, his wife laying there possibly in a position where they might lose you. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's yeah, heavy. They, oh, it's hard. It, I, and I'm not minimizing how hard it was on both sure. of them. Um, it was, it was brutal on both of them. Um, but you know, there, everybody has kind of a default coping mechanism and theirs was just to completely understand everything that they could. Right. So jumping ahead, I know um, coming up, this next January 31st is the anniversary of your heart transplant. I will be four, four, which is awesome. (laughs) So tell us, I'd love to know. So, you know, you eventually find out that there's a heart for you. 
you're going to have the transplant. How, what was going through your mind at that point when you're like maybe a day or two before your actual surgery? Well, it all happened very fast. Um, on at 11 30 PM, some things you never forget on January yeah. 29th, a surgeon walked into my room and said, we have an offer for you. And I looked at him and thought, well, I know I haven't slept in multiple days because nobody sleeps in the hospital, but what, what on earth are you talking about? <laughs> and he said, I think we have the perfect heart for you. Um, he said, it's a high risk heart. So you need to make a decision about whether or not you're going to take it. And we had a conversation about what on earth that meant. And, yeah, right. and, um, I got my husband on the phone because it was late and we had a conversation, a three-way conversation. And then Jim and I talked, we decided to move forward with the surgery. Mm. Um, and I was wheeled into the OR the next day at, uh, 8 PM and wheeled out at eight 30 the next morning. Um, wow. prior to that, I mean, there's so much going on to prep you that you don't have a ton of time to think about things, but instantly you're feeling everything. I think it's the only time in my life that I have felt every single emotion because, you know, as you're getting yeah. this news, there's another family that's getting devastating news. Oh man! And yeah. that's not lost on you. That's, that's not lost on you at all. And it's never, it's not lost on me now. Yeah. Um, that, that on January 31st, when I'm celebrating another four years of life, there will be another family that is mourning that it's been four years since they lost their husband, son, brother, whoever, um, yeah, and yeah. friend. And, um, that is something I carry with me all the time and want to live up to. This is a gift that to me, comes with an obligation and I'm not saying this should be the way, but for right. me it comes with yeah. the obligation to live a life that is worthy of both of us. Wow. Yeah. I, you know, the, another person I had on my uh, podcast who had a heart transplant was, it was from a, another individual who had taken his life Oof. and he really struggled with knowing that I have the heart of someone who didn't want to be here, but that same heart is keeping me being here. And he said he had a rough time kind of wrestling with that for the first several years of his transplant. Did you ever go through anything like that over the next little while after you had the transplant where you were wrestling with, you know, maybe think, thinking things that way or. No, I, I okay. really didn't. Um, okay. I, I, completely understand that there is another family that's grieving and maybe it's because I don't know anything about my donor. Um, yeah. I know he was a male. I know he was in his late twenties or early thirties. Um, I know he spent some time in prison because that's what made him a high risk. Um, okay. but I don't, I, I've written letters to the family, um, but I've never heard anything back. So, okay. which as a mom, I kind of resonate with, because sure. I'm not sure. I think for me, it would take a while for me to want to reach out to the people who have my child's organs. Yeah. Right. So, so I will write a letter in perpetuity on the every year on, on the anniversary, but I have no expectations of hearing back. Okay. Um, so maybe because maybe my, again, little miracle is that I don't know, I don't know yeah. 
why he passed. I don't know if it was an sure. accident or I, I just don't know. I don't know why he passed. Um, and so I haven't been in a headspace where I've had to even conjecture about that. Yeah. Um, and so maybe that's my little gift is that I haven't been able, I haven't, I haven't really been put in a position where I have to think about it. Yeah, no, very well said. Thanks for sharing that part. You know, I, I want to, I'm going to ask you a big question. I know it's a big loaded question because there's several things that you could say, but what are maybe one or two of the biggest lessons you've learned through this whole process of finding out that you had it, you know, this heart disease back at age 29, you, you, you know, you had all these, you know, wake up calls throughout the, you know, the next several years. And then you obviously go through, get the transplant. What were you know, maybe one or two of the biggest lessons you think that you've learned through all this? Well, it's going to sound trite. Um, and maybe it is, but when you come as close to death as I did, and I actually post transplant came closer to death than I did pre. Mm. Um, okay. I, I know, I know that life is short and it is precious and mm. it is not promised. Yeah. And, um, we are not invincible. Um, and living today with joy and with peace, knowing that is right. the best gift you can give yourself. Wow. Um, and to me, I take joy in the most mundane things. People will laugh at me because it's not, for me, it's not, I have to do laundry today. It's I get to do laundry today. Wow, yeah. <laughs> I get to. Um, I, I get to, I get to cook dinner. I get to go to the grocery I get to go to the grocery store, even though I don't love going to the grocery store, but right. I get to, um, yeah. and even the, even the, just the dumbest chores, um, <laughs> you know, I, I have to sift through my email. If you saw my inbox, I have to sift through my email today, but I get to do that. I get yeah. to do that. Um, yeah. and so I think that's the biggest lesson um, that I've learned. And I, I think that we all can say that. I think everybody says life is short. Life is precious. Life is, you know, right. and it's, it's just like, good morning. How are you? Yeah. Um, but when you come face to face with the serious potential of not being here and go through something as traumatic as a heart transplant, um, the complications that I had afterwards, um, you, you know, it deep in your soul. Yeah. And, um, my, I, I know my faith is so much more solid than it ever was before, because I know, I know that I know that I know. Yeah. Wow. Well, that makes a lot of sense and is very well said. I mean, I love what you said about, I, I get to do laundry today <laughs> um, because like you said, you, you see it in a different perspective now because you very well, I mean, there's probably in a lot of ways you shouldn't be here. I, I mean, right. I mean, 
My but life here, was saved multiple times in the span of about a week. Right. And, and that, that, that really hit me hard when you said that, like, I know I take for granted even doing these podcasts. And I, and as you said that, I'm like, I get to talk to Denise today. I get to do this. I get to hear this amazing story that, that I can feel so deeply. And uh, what a blessing it is to sit here and talk to you today. Like, honestly, I feel that way. It is, it is a gift. It is, everything is a gift. Putting both feet on the floor in the morning and getting up, even if today is going to be a hard day, um, it's a gift. And it's not promised at all. Yeah, right. It's not promised at all. And um, I just, I really, I really feel that in my deep in my soul every single day. Yeah. Well, you know, so back um, just recently in 2020, you you created and you're the founder of the Heartfelt Help Foundation. I am. Yeah. Tell us why you uh, did this and what, what that foundation is all about. Well, it took me a, a full year to recover. Um, again, mm -hmm. I had a ton of complications. Um, I had three open heart surgeries in the span of a week. Um, my transplant, and then twice more to fix internal bleeding. The third one, the third open heart surgery almost killed me. Um, I had Man. both types of organ rejection and an infection. Um, so it took me a long time to recover from that. I bet. Um, yeah. But I did. And um, which I say that I used to hesitate saying how many complications and how close to death I came after transplant. But the, the thing I want people to walk away from is that you can go through things that frankly try to kill you yeah. and you can still survive them. You can still survive them. It is just a season. It feels like a never ending season, but it is a season and mm. you can come out on the other side of it better. Yeah. Wow. Um, and so that's why I tell that part of my story because I used to hide it because I didn't want people to think that yeah. that's going to be their story. You know, if yeah. they have to have a heart transplant, that that's going to be their story. They're going to have all these complications and stuff. And it's like, no, I had those. You don't have to have those. Yeah. But what I'm saying to you is that you can, you can get through this yeah. because I got through all of it. Even when I stood in my hospital room and looked at my husband and said, I don't think I can do this anymore. Um, you can still get through it even when you have those moments where you think you can't. Yeah. Um, but all that to say that once I recovered, I enough to like, feel like I could do things again. Um, I wanted to, I wanted to give back. I wanted to live my life in a way that I thought my donor would be proud, that my parents yeah. would be proud, that I would be proud of, of what legacy I've left because even with a heart transplant, a heart transplant isn't a cure. It's a treatment. And right. there's a ticking clock on a transplant. Um, yep. And we don't know, we don't know how long the ticking clock's going to be. Um, but there's a ticking clock on transplants. So um, I am motivated to, to, to do something that, that makes my donor proud, that, 
that mm-hmm. I can I can leave a legacy for. Um, and I really didn't know what that was. Um, I started working with our local organ procurement organization and talking to high school kids about organ donation, which I still do and completely love. Yeah, that's um, awesome. High school kids are amazing and they ask yes. the most crazy questions. <laughs> yes, they do. Um, and they <laughs> like seeing pictures of my old heart, which is hysterical. Um, but and I've, you know, I've gone and talked to groups and about organ donation and the process of transplantation. Um but that wasn't, I knew that that wasn't filling this niche that I wanted to fill. Um, and it wasn't until um, September or so of 2019. And I happened to walk in on a conversation in my doctor's office when I was there for a follow-up check. And they were talking about a patient that was currently impatient, like I was waiting for a heart transplant. And their transplant was going to be delayed because they didn't have the funds to pay for what insurance didn't. Mm. And immediately something just clicked. Yeah. And I was like that, that's it. Money should not be delaying money. Something as stupid as money, which was the exact thought I had. (laughs) Right. Something as stupid as money should not be delaying this person from his transplant. And I asked a bunch of questions when I was there. Um, The largest cost that a transplant patient has to pay largely out of pocket um, most of the time is housing. We have to move to within 20 or 30 minutes of our transplant facility, sometimes closer than that, for at least six weeks and typically more like three months. Yeah. Um, And that doesn't mean that you get to not pay your rent or your mortgage at home. You're still paying all of those bills. You're still paying to keep the lights on. You're still paying your rent or mortgage. You're still paying your insurance bills. Right. But now you've got to add a second home basically onto that. Um, And at best, that's only minimally covered by insurance. And we learned firsthand um, because we had to move to Silicon Valley, um, and that was cost us forty four hundred dollars a month when I went through mine. Man, in addition to all of our other costs. Oh, you're right. We were lucky enough. We had friends and family step in to help fill our gap. Not everybody is that lucky. And there's this huge gap. And so I went home. I figured out how to use my uh, my medical plan. Had a uh, nonprofit arm, so I used their five hundred one c three. And Mm -hmm. I threw together a fundraiser um, in my backyard with about three weeks notice and we raised $12,000. Wow. That's awesome. And um, that was enough to pay for that patient's post-transplant housing. And we had a little left over to pay for others. And that was where that Christmas um, I sat down with my family and I said, this is, I think this is what I want to do. And started doing some due diligence and finding out if there was anybody else, started talking to social workers at the various clinics and realized that there was really no one else doing any kind of nonprofit work that filled this gap. So um, at least in Northern California. Yeah. And so we filed for our 501c3 and then COVID hit. (laughs) (laughs) And yeah, uh, we, fi- wow. we filed for it in, <laughs> I think, late January, early February of 2020. Um, and March, everything shut down. And we thought, well, 
that was a good thought while we had it, but um, you know, the government's going to have bigger fish to fry than to issue this little nonprofit a 501c3 designation. Right. And uh, but in September of last year, we got our 501c3 designation, and wow. uh, we hit the ground running. Man. And um, we have been able to usher, usher, help. I still haven't figured out the right verbiage for any of this. Um, Sounds good. (laughs) We've been able to help six patients pay fully for their transplant, post-transplant housing. We help them find it because when you are facing your initial discharge from the hospital, there's so much going on in the hospital that trying to find a place that you can stay outside of the hospital is like your last priority. It's the thing in the middle of the night searching Craigslist or, you know, (laughs) hotels or stuff like that. And so we take that burden off of the family and because the family, the patient is going through a lot, but the patient gets a lot of attention. The family needs the attention. And so we take that burden off of the family and we say, we're going to find you a space that works exactly for your family. So for example, one of our patients that's currently in post-transplant housing right now She's in her 30s um, or early 30s, and her caregivers are her parents. And her sister um, are swapping off. And so having a place that was two bedrooms and two bathrooms is kind of critical for them because you don't want mom and dad sleeping on a pullout sofa in the same room that their daughter's sleeping in. Exactly. Um, You want them to be comfortable. You want them to be in a place that feels like home. And... So they're actually staying in the same apartment that my husband and I stayed in when I was post-transplant. We were able to put them in the exact same spot, which we were super grateful for. Yeah, that's great. Um, If it's a husband and wife, it's a different type of situation. But we also don't want to do communal living houses like um, not to throw, I'm not throwing any shade at the Ronald McDonald house, but using them as a model. Um, They have a communal housing model where um, everybody has their own bedrooms. But if you want a snack, you're going to a communal kitchen. If you want to go watch a movie, you're going to a communal living room. And that means um, that you are risking infection every time you step out of your bubble. Sure. Yeah. And I think COVID taught that to the rest of us is that, yeah, you know, the need right. for a bubble. Well, when you are discharged initially from the hospital after your transplant, you're at your most immunosuppressed. Yeah. So they have done everything they can to kill every white blood cell in your body um, so that your body can begin to accept, although it never fully accepts this new heart. Yeah. Um, so you are at the most risk for fungal infections, for viral infections, for bacterial infections, all of the infections. Um, and to be in a place with people who maybe aren't taking it as seriously as you are, maybe are, yeah. maybe are super into masking, maybe aren't, um, puts you at risk. Yeah. And so giving our patients a place where they can get a snack, go watch a movie and not leave their bubble is super important to us and what we want to do. Um, So that's that's how Heartfelt Health Foundation got funded and started. We are so grateful for the people who are donating um, to the foundation because it's really, as I just said in our, our October letter, 
it's, I, I'm not doing anything. I am the face of this and yeah. have conversations with people, but we can do nothing. I can do nothing without the donors who are making all of this possible. Right. Um, I, I cannot help anyone without yeah. them. So we are intensely grateful for the people for whom this has resonated with and feel compelled to support us financially. Wow. It's beautiful. So great that you're doing this, Denise. Seriously. I want to read another uh, testimonial from one of these people that uh, you have helped. It says the heartfelt help foundations, heartfelt dedication and help to each and everyone in need makes a difference in everyone's life. They've touched like ours, more power to miss Denise and the heartfelt help foundation. Um, again, I, I just, I'm really impressed with what you're doing. You took, you took one of your own difficulty, traumatic events in your life, and now you're giving back. And I love what you said earlier. You said, I want to make my donor proud. That really touched me. I got emotional about it when you said that, because that, that is an amazing mindset and what a great motivation to move forward in the good things that you're doing. Thank you. I appreciate that. I, um, I think that's why to go back to your earlier question, why it doesn't really bother me about um, like how my donor may have lost his life. Sure. Because my whole mindset is, you know, no matter what happened to him, if he died by suicide, if he, whatever, whatever his life story was, yeah, yeah. I can still make him proud and sure. take his heart and do something worthwhile with it that he can say from wherever he is, he can look yeah. down and say, I am, you know, my life meant something yeah. because of what my heart is doing now. Dang, that's amazing. I love that. Well, I want to ask you um, if, if there's someone listening to your voice right now, Denise, that's struggling and maybe it has nothing to do with whether they need a transplant or not, but they're just having a rough day. You've said some amazing things in this uh, interview. What would be some advice that you would share with someone right now who's listening to your voice, who's in maybe a dark place? Uh, I'm going to say three things. Okay. <laughs> That's okay. Good. <laughs> Talk to a therapist. Find mm -hmm. yourself a therapist that, that hears you. Um, and mm -hmm. there's no excuse for it now. Even if you're at home, there are online therapists who are fan-freaking-tastic yeah. um, and yeah. are available to you on a Zoom call. Um, yeah. And um, can provide the sounding board and the feedback, the objective feedback that you need to figure out how to get yourself out of a dark place. Um, Second is journaling. Um, and yeah. I'm going to tell you that I am the worst at <laughs> journaling. Um, I, I will tell pre-transplant patients, write everything. Don't, don't do what I did. Right. Write everything down. Write your story down. Write the hard things down. Because there are things about my story I don't remember. Because I was so out of it on you know, recovering from anesthesia three times, um, that I, I don't remember parts of my story. Um, yeah, yeah. and 
I wish that I had been better about writing stuff down because I'm a terrible journaler. Some people are great at it. I'm terrible. Um, I force myself to now. Yeah. And it's, it is probably the thing I don't say I get to journal today because I really, it, it's yeah. not my favorite thing to do, sure. <laughs> um, but do it, write yeah. stuff, write your, write your heart down, put your heart on a piece of paper. And even if you, you know, I told, I told a friend the other day um, who was going through a really difficult time with um, a family member and I said, write everything you want to say to that person down and then burn it. And I said, it'll make you feel better. And, yeah. and she did that and it did. And I've done that myself a couple sure, of times yeah. where, you know, I've just said, just unloaded on whatever, and then just burnt the piece of paper, shredded it. You don't have to be so grandiose as to burn it, shred it, whatever. Right. Sure. Um, but writing stuff down can be cathartic for sure. And my last thing, and maybe it's, I was going to say therapy was the most important thing, but maybe this is the most important thing is do something for somebody else. Hmm. Amen to that. No matter how down I was and how hopeless I felt, um, even if it's sending somebody a text saying, Hey, how are you today? That I know doesn't hear from very many people. Um, hey, how are you today? What are you doing today? Um, I'm praying for you. Um, if you're a person of faith, pray for somebody. As simple as praying for somebody else. Yeah. Um, gets you enough out of your own head um, to realize that you're not alone in this. Right. That your tough time is not unique. That other people are going through difficult times too. And um, just getting out of your own head enough to focus on somebody else, whether it's doing something nice for them, um, drop some flowers off at their doorstep, whatever. I mean, it doesn't have to be big. Yeah. Um, one of the nicest things, one of the nicest things and a one of my little miracles throughout the whole thing, this whole process was um, that a couple of friends of mine who have little kids had their little kids draw me things and they would always show up in my bag of mail right. um, exactly at the moment that I needed like to see a four-year-old's drawing of me. Yeah. Right. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Um, and, and they were, they were little miracles. They were gifts to me. So mail somebody something, um, you know, have, if you have kids, have your kids draw something for somebody. Um, it is, it can be life-changing and it can be yeah. life-saving and it will save your own life yeah. because getting out of your own head and doing something for somebody else for sure gets you to a better mind mindset and mind play that place in your head. Yeah. Very well said. I, I agree with those three things for sure. Um, thank you so much for sharing that advice. I really appreciate it. Cause I know there's some people listening right now that are probably having a rough time. And so I'm so grateful that you said that if people want to reach out to you, Denise, and ask you a question, or if they want to maybe give a donation to your foundation or, you know, or just learn more about what you do and about your story, what would be the best place for them to do that? I am, um, 
to quote somebody else, I am embarrassingly easy to find. Um, <laughs> and, uh, the, the website for the foundation is heartfelthelpfoundation.com. Okay. Um, I'm on social media, both uh, Instagram and Facebook at Heartfelt Help Foundation. I'm on Twitter at Heartfelt Help F because they don't take long names and <laughs> foundation is a long name. Yes. Um, uh, and um, all of those have direct messaging functions and you can reach out to me. Um, any email you send to me straight through the foundation will come straight to me. Um, and I am always happy to share stories and talk to people who are going through similar or maybe even not so similar things, but going through their own stuff. Um, the peer-to-peer mentoring part of this is super important to me. Absolutely. No, that's great. Well, I, I, I really encourage anyone listening to this right now to, to reach out to Denise and learn more about her amazing foundation to give a donation. I am going to pledge right now. I'm going to give a donation. And so have everyone else, please follow my lead and let's, let's support what Denise is doing. Um, uh, so many people need help in these in, in that time. And I think a lot of us who are never in the transplant world, we don't think of that, like that people need help after the transplant. And you really spelled it out really well. So, but I can't thank you enough, Denise, for taking some time today to be with us. Um, I admire you. I respect you. I, you know, I, I so glad you're here and that you're here to make a difference in this world. And I would believe even right now that the, your donor is very proud of you. Oh, thank you. That is, uh, that means the most to me. Yeah. That, that means the most to me of just about anything is that I make his, his gift. Yeah. Live. No, that's awesome. Well, thanks for being here with us and best of luck with everything you're doing. And if there's anything I can do, even down the road, please let me know. And I'd be happy to help out any way that I can. I will. Well, I will say one more thing just because it's a fun thing. And I, vaguely have an idea that you are a, are you a cyclist? Am I a cyclist? No, I'm no. not. Oh, you're not. I thought, for, no. I thought I'd, I'd seen or heard <laughs> something about you, but we are actually having a fundraising bike ride in March, um, which is going to have all kinds of, we don't have the sign up form yet, but we will hopefully by next week. Um, but if anyone out there is a cyclist and wants to um, help a heart transplant patient get a super cool shirt out of it um, <laughs> that we are in the process of designing with an art local artist right now, um, let me know and we'll we'll get you on our uh, we'll get you on our mailing list. Okay, that sounds great. No, I love it. I'm glad you're doing those things. Like I said, and anyone listening to this, please support her and. And check her out. It's, it's amazing what she's doing. We need more people like Denise. And uh, thank you for tuning in once again. And one last thank you to you, Denise. Uh, best of luck to all that you're doing. Oh, and thank you so much for having me. Like I said, it was a distinct honor. And I get to oh. do this today. <laughs> yes, I got to do this too. So it's so great. Thank you for tuning in. And thanks for tuning in, everybody. I love you guys. Please share this with anyone that you know, especially if someone's just even if they're just struggling, they'll need to hear these powerful words from Denise. And thank you once again for all your support. Love you guys.